My name is Stephen Staten, and I have the privilege of uh, serving as one of the pastors here at Bell Shoals, specifically the uh, campus pastor at our Apollo Beach location. And I'm excited to be here on the stage at Brandon and on the screens at Apollo. Let's welcome our Apollo Beach campus. Come on, ABC. Excited to be here as we kick off a new teaching series for the month of July where we're going to be looking at some of the miracles that Jesus performed. And the idea is this, that these were not just, these miracles were not just magic tricks or where Jesus just kind of got caught up in the moment of healing people left and right. That these miracles served a deeper meaning and provided a deeper revelation of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so the goal as we track through the month of July and these miracles, the goal is for you to come to see and know Jesus better as a result of us diving in to these miracles. So what better miracle to start with than the very first one that Jesus performed. And so if you got a Bible, and I hope that you do, let's open it up to the Gospel of John chapter 2. If you're new to the, uh, the Bible, John is in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to be in the second chapter. As you're turning there, let me just kind of say this. This is a popular story, even among people who are not religious or don't know much about the Bible. Somewhere along the way, you, they've probably heard the phrase, water into wine. And even for us today, if, if you've grown up in the church and uh, you've been around the block and you know the Bible, you know this story well. And the problem with that is, is that familiarity can breed contempt. And it's easy for us to miss what's going on in this miracle. Let me just say it like this. There is a lot more going on in this miracle right here than most people realize. And what we're going to see here in just a few moments when I get to the end of my sermon in about an hour and a half, okay, and you think that's a joke, Apollo, you know I'm not joking. We're, we're going to see that this miracle is going to reveal four things about Jesus, four things about Jesus. We're going to get to see who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, what Jesus offers, and how to receive it. And so if you're a note taker, and I always encourage people to take notes, don't pass notes, but take notes uh, while I'm preaching, this is where we're going to land the plane. And we're going to see who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, what he offers to us today, and then how to receive it. And so that's where we're going to go. And what I want to do is I want to read our miracle in its entirety, uh, picking up John chapter 2, verse 1 and following, uh, and then we'll come back around and dive into it. So here it is, the wedding at Cana, John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, and what has to be one of the most awkward conversations in the New Testament, okay? Here she goes, hey, 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 Jesus, come right here, hey. They have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, 
Whoa, man, woman, woman, what does this have to do with me? Why are you dragging me in on this? My hour has not yet come. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Pick up verse 6. I love this. John, John writes this as if he is an eyewitness to what's going on. He gives us extra detail. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So if you do the math, six times 30, that's 180 gallons right there. That's a lot of water right there, okay? And he said, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, hey, bro, everyone that serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine out of the box. I just kind of added that in there. <laughs> but you, you man, you've kept the good one until now. And look at verse 11. Verse 11 is so important. Don't, don't, don't miss past. Don't, don't, don't read it past. This, the first of his, come on somebody, help me out. First of his what? His signs. The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And look who believed in him as a result of this miracle, his disciples. The disciples believed in him. And so, Father, I pray as we walk back through this, God, that you would right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would give us eyes to see. Father, that you would give us ears to hear. And God, that you would give us a heart to understand what you're doing here in this miracle and what it means for us today. It's in your name we pray and believe. And all God's children said, amen. amen. Okay, like I said, we're going to walk through this miracle and we're going to walk through it in four different scenes and watch it unfold. But before we get to the text, let me just kind of lay some groundwork for us, some context so that we fully understand what's happening before we dive in to the scriptures. Number one is this. I hope that you notice that, that this was the first miracle, the first sign that Jesus did. And this is significant. If, if you're new to the Bible, uh, kind of a good rule of thumb is that first thing are important in the Bible. First man, first sin, first book, first verse, first commandment. And here we see Jesus's first miracle at a wedding. And, and what you notice about this wedding is it's, uh, this miracle, it's a quiet miracle. Now, not everybody knows what's happening. Really only the servants or the disciples pick up on what happened and that a miracle even occurred. And so if I was Jesus, and we can all be thankful that I'm not, okay, if, if I was Jesus and I was about to start and launch my public ministry, if I was going to start a movement that's going to change the world, I would do something a little bit more spectacular than just turn water into wine. I, I mean, I would bring somebody back from the dead. I, I would raise somebody from the dead. I'd walk on water. I'd do the whole fish and chips thing with 5,000 people. I, I do a little something more spectacular than just turn water into wine. I mean, this is really, this is just a social embarrassment right here on the groom's part. 
This is not a life and death situation right here. Jesus is solving a problem at a party. But so, so, so why water into wine? Well, John gives us a hint here. Notice verse 11. I told you, don't, don't read past this one. In verse 11, John says that this was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. That this is not just a miracle, but it's also a sign. And what do signs do? Signs point us to something. They, they are intended to point us to something else. This miracle is revealing something about Jesus and what he came to do and what he will do. Listen, y'all, it's no coincidence that Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding. The, the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. And this miracle at this wedding is a sign that is to point us to the wedding that is to come, to the real feast that is to come. When Jesus, come on somebody, and his bride, the church, will come together, when God will establish the new heaven and the new earth, and we will come together, and there will be no more pain, no more suffering, that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's where we're going. And so this miracle right here is a sign to point us to that wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb, where you and I will be joined with Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. And so this is a sign right here of what is to come. Second thing I want you to know, that Jesus began his public ministry at a wedding, at a party, if you will. I mean, Jesus didn't launch his public ministry in a Sunday school classroom or in a life group or at the temple. His first miracle, his first sign was a miracle at a party and to keep the party going nonetheless. Come on, y'all. That's our Jesus right there. <laughs> now, come on. Uh, don't get me wrong now. All right. This is not everybody's drunk, lampshades on head, dancing on tabletops. Jesus is not leading the Macarena or doing TikTok videos, anything like that, okay? But it is a party. And here's, here's where I'm at on this right here. Jesus knew how to celebrate, and so should we. Y'all, we got the best news in the world. The tomb is empty. He ain't in there. And so we have every reason to celebrate. And far too long, y'all, the world has out-celebrated the church. And the things that the world celebrate, they don't have eternal significance. But what we do in here matters in light of eternity. And so we have every reason to celebrate. Many Christians, we do well with, with disciplines. We're up early, you're in the Word, you're memorizing Scriptures, and please hear me, keep doing that, absolutely. But at the end of the day, we lack a deep abiding joy. And one of the reasons why religious people hated Jesus is because he knew how to have a good time. He knew how to celebrate. I mean, you see it right here, Jesus was invited to parties. People liked Jesus. Could the same thing be said about you? Do people like you? 
I mean, you think about it, that's a, that's a real spiritual maturity. That's a real discipleship question. Why? Because spiritual maturity is being like Jesus and people like to be around Jesus. So do people like to be around you? If anything, this miracle tells us that Jesus, our Jesus, he came to give joy, not to take joy. Came to give it. Grace has come in Jesus, grace upon grace upon grace, and his grace has made us glad. We should celebrate. We should be glad. Why? Because if we are in Christ, come on somebody, our sins are forgiven, our guilt is removed in Christ, death is defeated, the kingdom is coming, we will suffer, we will have trials, we will have hardships in this world, but Jesus said, take heart. Why? Because I have overcome this world. We may have sorrow in the night, but Come on, joy comes in the morning. Come on, Apollo, help me out. So we can always be rejoicing. Jesus has come to give us joy, and his grace has made us glad. Last thing, number three, uh, this, I think this is number three. I don't know, I, I, I lose track up here. Uh, and then we're gonna get to scripture. Here, okay, let's just talk about this. Let's get it out here, all right? There are many reactions to the idea that Jesus has turned water into wine, all right? Some people just can't get around the fact that Jesus made wine. If that's you this morning, I got one word for you, okay? Got one word for you, Apollo. Relax. <laughs> it's just wine. Jesus did not do anything illegal. He did not do anything sinful. He didn't turn water into crack. If he'd have done that, we'd have had a bigger issue, okay? But he turned water into wine. This is what we're going to see. Bear with me. Is a beautiful, holy, gracious thing that we're going to see. On top of being a miracle, Jesus is giving this groom a wedding gift. And on top of that, let's just go ahead and dispel the rumors, okay? It was real wine. Fundamentals are going to tell you that it's not real wine. This is not 180 gallons of grape juice. Nobody gets excited about 180 gallons of grape juice. The people got excited when they saw 180 gallons of wine. And with the backdrop of the Old Testament, you got to know the Old Testament in this, the Old Testament that viewed wine, now not drunkenness, but wine as a sign of God's joy and God's blessing. And so here's the deal. If you get hung up on the fact that Jesus made wine with alcohol, brother and sister, as lovingly as I can say it, you are missing the whole point of this miracle. All right? So, y'all ready to get to work? Yeah. Apollo, y'all ready? All right, here we go. We're going to see this unfold in four scenes. Scene number one is a joyous celebration. Verses one and two, a joyous celebration. John begins, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Let's pause. Let's talk about this joyous celebration. Notice who's present there. Jesus's mother, Mary, was there. Maybe she had some catering responsibilities with the wedding. Maybe she was related to somebody there. We don't know, but we know she's there. Why? Because she comes to Jesus with the statement, the wine is gone. 
Jesus is there with his disciples. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's got five disciples. And we read later on in John 21 that Nathanael, one of the disciples, was literally from Cana of Galilee. And so maybe Nathanael is related to somebody being married. Jesus is there. Jesus is not antisocial. He's not a hermit. He's, he's at the party. He's present. And so that's who's there. Now, weddings, let's talk about weddings. Weddings in Palestine were a big deal. And I know they're a big deal today, all these brides saying yes to the dress and all that stuff, but they were major back in the day. They were announced well in advance. The whole village would come to the wedding. Sometimes they would last for a week and people would take off work. They would leave their farm to come. They were a joyous time, a festival, all that good stuff. And it was socially inappropriate to turn down an invitation. So we're talking about a lot of people at this wedding, which I think is the reason for the quantity of wine that Jesus makes. So a lot of people here, big time celebration, a joyous celebration is happening until we get to verse 3. If we're watching a movie, this is where the music would turn. Everybody's happy, high five, and having a good time. And then all of a sudden, dun, 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 the wine's gone. Scene number two, a ruinous situation. We go from a joyous celebration to a ruinous situation. Verse three, we got a problem. The wine is gone. Jesus, came, uh, 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 Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to him with that statement, the wine is gone. Now, for us today, again, we got to understand context. This may not seem like a big deal. If we run out of drinks or food at our party, what do we do? We run down to the Publix, we run down to the Walmarts, and we fix it, right? No big deal. But in this culture, it was a big deal. Why? Because when the wine ran out, literally, the party was over. Wine was customary. At parties. And not only was it customary, but it was also symbolic. It was symbolic of joy and blessing and celebration in this Jewish culture. And not only would the party be over, but to run out of wine would have brought shame on this family. And we're talking a big time honor and shame culture. And if you didn't provide the necessities for the party, that would be the equivalent of egg on your face today. And this couple getting married, I mean, if you, if you failed to provide a really good party, it would take years for this couple to get over that. This is a social disaster. And listen, that is no way to start your marriage. No, no way to do that, having to deal with that. In that culture, in this day, the financial responsibility, listen to this, for the wedding belonged to the groom. And all the men with daughters in the house said, amen, right? Me with four boys at the house, I'm glad we've changed that, okay? But the, the groom was responsible for, for providing this, and weddings were so serious that it would not have been out of the realm of possibility for the bride's family to literally sue the groom's family for failure to provide adequate provisions. So we're talking about a big deal right here. I mean, this is not, oh, no, we're out of drinks. Let's go down to the, uh, to the Publix and get something. No, no, no. This is a big deal. And everyone is unaware of this except for a few people, one of those being Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so Mary comes to Jesus, and like I said, in one of the most awkward conversations in the New Testament, and she's like, Jesus, Jesus, come here, come here, come here, come here. 
have no more wine. Now you think about this, okay? All right, if you're Jesus, what's your response to this right here, okay? I, I, I mean, if you're Jesus, is he like, like, mom, listen, I'm 30 years old now, okay? Stop with the chore chart, okay? Stop, stop bossing me around. And anyway, listen, girl, I made you, so just chill out, okay? I mean, is, is, that, is that Jesus right here? I mean, so what does Jesus do in this moment? Uh, uh, I mean, he's like, the wine is that now? Now, why would Mary come to Jesus in this moment? Let's talk about that first. Well, well, number one, I think it's safe to say that at this point in time, Joseph, the dad, is dead. We don't see him. He's not at the crucifixion. He's not at the cross. The last time we've seen Joseph was when Jesus was 12, when they literally left him at the temple. Um, made, makes me feel better about my parenting skills right there. I mean, you forgot the son of God, y'all, okay? Um, so we don't see Joseph anywhere in there. So, so chances are he has passed on. And in that culture, the eldest son assumes responsibility for mama in that situation. And so all this time, however many years that is, Mary has been coming to Jesus with problems. You know, if, if something's going on, something breaks around the house, who do you go to? You go to Jesus. And so here, there's an issue, there's a problem. Where do you go? It's a good rule of thumb for us. You go to Jesus, right? Take it to Jesus. Jesus, they have no more wine. There's problems. I've been coming to you. Can you fix this situation? That's number one. Number two reason I think Mary might be coming to Jesus is because Mary knows that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, I mean there's, no, there's no bones about that. I mean, she knows that. The fact that she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit is evident enough that Jesus is the Messiah. And so when we sing that Mark Lowry song at Christmas time, Mary, did you know? The answer is yes, she did, okay? She knew he's the Messiah. And Jesus rolls up at this wedding with five disciples. And so maybe, maybe Mary is thinking, okay, all right, you're the Messiah. I know this virgin birth, angel told me all this. This might be a good time for you to start your public ministry. Now, I don't know if she's got a miracle in mind. Jesus hasn't done any miracles up to this point. So maybe she's thinking, hey, this would be a great opportunity to show yourself as the Messiah. At any rate, whatever the reason, Mary comes to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, they got no more wine. And his response to her, verse 4, is classic. Woman, <laughs> what does this have to do with me? Can I just say, men, that is a fantastic verse to use if you want to get in trouble, okay? <laughs> I come home from work, Samantha's got the five kids. These five kids are driving me crazy. Woman, what does this guy to do with me? It will not go well for you, okay? <laughs> but, but notice this, at first you read that and you're like, man, is Jesus, is Jesus getting a little disrespectful to mama right here? What, what, what is up with it? I mean, it's, it's, it's not even dear woman, it's just woman. Strikes us as disrespectful. But Jesus says this to women throughout the gospel, a close equivalent. If you like to jot down notes in your Bible, a close equivalent would be something to ma'am. It's what, it's what how Jesus uh, uh, addressed Mary from the cross, woman, when he was passing her off to John for John to care for his mom. It says woman. But, but notice, but notice here, here's the key. It's woman and it's not. This is huge. You got to get this. You got to get this. You got to get this. It's not mother. It's woman. Listen, look, look. That's significant right there. That, that, that's significant. 
Jesus isn't saying, hey, 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 woman, I'm 30 years old. You can stop with the chore chart. What is Jesus doing in this situation? It's huge. Jesus is literally redefining the relationship between him and Mary. And literally he's saying, okay, hey, I'm about to start my ministry. I'm about to go public. And now you're going to have to refer to me as Lord and not son. If I could boil it down, Jesus is saying, I love you, mom but you're not my boss. He's creating distance. He's creating space between the human authority he has and the authority he has as the son of God. And from this point forward, Mary will have to come to Jesus just like everybody else as a follower and as a disciple. She will have to submit to him as Lord because Jesus will be absolutely a thousand percent resolute in living out the will of his Father. I love how D.A. Carson put it in his commentary on uh, the Gospel of John. He said this, he said, but now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. It's remarkable, it's a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. Now listen, this is not callousness on Jesus' part. No, he's not being mean, he's not being disrespectful. Even on the cross, he makes provision for a future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb, oh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's redefining this relationship right here. And how do we know? How do we know he's redefining the relationship? Because look what he says next. He says, hey, hey, woman, what does this have to do with me? Reason, my hour has not yet come. It's not my time yet. Now, what does he mean by hour? That hour refers to the cross. And isn't that strange that right here in the middle of a wedding celebration, Jesus is talking about the cross. He embeds this hour in the middle of a wedding. And that's significant. Why? Because Jesus knows why he came. His mission is bound up in the cross. And so Mary, understanding this relationship is changing, changes her tune. Now it's not, Jesus, get over here. They got him on. Woman, what does this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then Mary turns to the servants and says a great verse right here. Verse five, do whatever he tells you. Now that is the language of a disciple. What, what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that you, <laughs> you do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Obedience is a serious thing to the God of the Bible. And so Mary understands this, he, she detects this. And so don't read this as if Jesus got, you know, worn down by Mary. Don't, don't, don't read this as like, all right, mama, I'll, I'll get off my back, I'll take care of the problem. Don't read it like that, no, no, no. Jesus is in complete control. Jesus has his own agenda. Jesus knows the big picture, and Jesus will do this miracle, a.k.a. sign, to something greater to come. Which leads us to scene number three, a quiet transformation. So we've had a joyous celebration. Things are going great. Ruinous situation. Oh, my goodness, the wine is gone. And now we see this quiet transformation in scene three. 
where John, again, writes like an eyewitness. There is six stone water jars there for purification. And this was a, a, for ceremonial washing and cleansing. At a wedding in the Jewish world, the guests would wash their hands and the utensils would be clean. So John's saying, hey, there's six stone water jars there. And that is significant because Jesus will replace these jars with what he's about to do on the cross. These water jars are put into the story because of what Jesus is replacing. Jesus will replace the water of Judaism with the wine of the gospel, the old covenant with the new covenant, something better. Listen to me, this is huge right here. Jesus here is foreshadowing the wine of his blood that he will shed on the cross as the means of purification. In other words, listen, you don't have to go through a ceremonial process or cleansing to be pure to enter into the presence of God. All you got to do, brother and sister, is come to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, and he will cleanse you. It's a whole different ballgame. There's only one way to be made pure, and that is through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for that one clap over there. And so Jesus is literally saying that, hey, this day is over. There, there is a new day that has come. I've brought the good wine. I've brought celebration. I've brought joy. I've brought rejoicing. Why? Because I will make you new. I will wash away your stains. I will give you my cleanliness, and I will take from you your filthiness. That's our Jesus right there, y'all. I was having a... a lunch with a, with a friend several years ago, and, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and we were sitting there at Panera Bread, and uh, I was walking through the gospel with him, and, and th- these are his exact words. You know, you know a, a lot of preachers get up here, and they embellish, you know, stories right there. I would never do that to y'all, okay? <laughs> so everything that comes out of my mouth is true, okay? All right, all right so, so I'm sitting there at Panera Bread, and, and I'm walking through the gospel, and he looks at me, and he says, Stephen, I want to I want to give my life to Jesus. But, but here's the deal. There, there are certain things in my life that I need to clean up and get right before I give my life to Jesus. And I'm like, bro, pump the brakes here just a minute. You got it backwards. You don't clean yourself up and come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and then he will clean you up. That's the difference right there. You don't got to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You don't have to go through some purification. No, no, you come to Jesus and he's the one who will power wash your soul and cleanse you from all your stains. That's what you do. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Somebody say amen in the house. That is our Jesus. And so he said, hey, listen, fill those up. Why? Because I'm about to replace those stone jars. You're not going to need any, you're not going to need those anymore. Why? Because I'm about to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And so they fill these jars up to the brim where they're almost overflowing. I love that. Why? Because Jesus' grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, it never runs out. In verse 9 they, they bring the, the, the water now to wine to the toastmaster. And when the master of the feast tasted the wine or the water now become wine, this is verse 9. 
and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, said, hey, hey, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely and their taste buds are not as strong, the palate's, you know, a little, little, little crazy, then the poor wine. But you, 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 you've kept the good wine until now. Listen to me. Let me just tell you something this morning. Jesus is superior to everything that has gone before him. He is better. He is superior to anyone and everything. Jesus is the good wine. Jesus is the good stuff. And if you go anywhere outside of Jesus, guess what? You are settling for something less than the best. If you're looking for the creation to do what only the creator can do, you're going to be left continuing to search and to look. Jesus is the best. There's nothing better than him. So the groom receives the praise, even though he had nothing to do with it. He gets the credit for Jesus's work. But Jesus doesn't weasel in there. Jesus wasn't like, hey, hey, that wasn't the groom. That was me right here. No, he doesn't do that. He is gracious and he's loving, which leads to scene number four, last one. Scene number four, an effective revelation. We've seen the quiet transformation. We've seen the ruinous situation. We've seen the joyous celebration. And now here at the end, last verse, we see an effective revelation. This, the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. He manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. They didn't believe in him simply because he turned water into wine without grapes and fermentation. No, he didn't do that. Why do, these, why do these disciples now believe in Jesus? Well, I think it's because they knew their Old Testament. You see, you see in the Old Testament, the Messiah is associated with a wedding. He's associated with a feast, with joy and wine. You can read about that in Jeremiah and Joel and Amos and Isaiah, where the Messiah is associated with a celebration, a party, where the wine would flow with an abundance. This was a sign of joy, the new wine. The old is gone and the new is coming. And the disciples get a foretaste that the Messiah has come. And Jesus is literally saying, hey guys, it's a wedding. Everybody's laughing. The wine is flowing. The Messiah is here. And the disciples believe. They believe in him. So let me, uh, let me land the plane back where we started. What does this this miracle show us? Four things. It shows us who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he offers, and how for us to receive it. So let me just take these really quick, really quick. I promise, I promise. Apollo, hang with me really quick. Number one, who he is. We see in this story that Jesus is the ultimate purifier and the all-providing bridegroom. That's who Jesus is. That Jesus is not moved by religious ritual. He replaces those stone water jars. He replaces all Old Testament rituals with his death on the cross and the blood he shed. Like I said, there's only one way to be pure. It was the hardest way for him. It's the easiest way for us. We come to Jesus and we live in him. 
He's the ultimate purifier. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He is the ultimate purifier. But on top of that, he's also the all-providing bridegroom. Jesus, our Jesus, he never fails to give us what we need. He is there for us. The life-giving wine of his death in our place, it never runs out. He is the perfect, all-providing husband to his bride, the church. That is who our Jesus is. He came to give joy, to bring joy. He saves the day. He's the master of the banquet. There is no, come on, there is no one greater than our Jesus. That's our Jesus. That's who he is. And then on top of that, what did he come to do? It's embedded in this miracle. He came to die for his bride. That right here in his first miracle, he mentions his death. My hour has not yet come. But right here, Jesus knows what he must do. He is resolute on what he came to do. He knew uh, here at the wedding that he mentioned the cross. He knows what he must do. He knows that for you and me, this is how good he is, y'all, for you and me to drink the cup of joy, he would have to drink the cup of suffering. But yet he did it willingly for the joy that was set before our Jesus. He endured the cross for you and for me. What did he come to do? He came to lay down his life for his bride, the church. Number three, what does he offer? What does he offer? Simple, superior satisfaction. You see, we're taught in scriptures to not only know that the Lord is good, but to taste and see that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher, used to say that when you became a Christian, your heart gets new sensory abilities, that you're a new creation, you get new affections. Listen, becoming a Christian is not just about signing a doctrinal statement. It's about coming to a feast. It's about finding superior satisfaction. The new wine points to that. Listen, I'll say it again. There's nothing better than our Jesus. Psalm 4, 7, put it like this. The psalmist said, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. So come on, do you you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus provides the greatest joy, that Jesus is your highest good, that he's better than blank? You you fill in the blank, whatever blank is for you, that he's better than that. And if not, listen to me, if you think there's something else out there better than Jesus, you are setting yourself up for great disappointment. There is no idol, there is no little G, there is nothing in creation that can give you what Jesus can give you. There's a biographer of Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway was notorious for for chasing every pleasure in this world, looking, looking for something to fill that void in his life. And he did that constantly until he finally ended up taking his own life. And the biographer put it like this, when he was telling this story, he said, eventually, eventually the wine ran out. Listen, I don't know what you're chasing this morning, 
But if it's apart from Jesus, eventually the wine will run out. Only in Jesus does the wine never run out. He satisfies us fully and forever. That's our Jesus. Finally, last one, number four. How do we receive it? Well, notice what the disciples did. They saw the glory of Jesus and they believed in him. And I love, I love the simplicity of verse 11. They saw it and they simply placed their faith, their trust, their belief in him. We believe that he is the Messiah. That's John's purpose for writing this entire book, that you would see Jesus and believe in him, that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that you believe in him and that you may have life in his name. John two is written that you may believe. So if you're here this morning and you don't believe, put, just cry out to God, say, God, I believe in you. I trust in you. I love you. I want you to satisfy me. I want you to be my savior. I want you to take him as the giver of joy, as the one who will satisfy you forever. He's the Lord of the wedding feast. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who find refuge in him in all of our pleasures. Jesus is better in all of our sufferings. Christ is enough.